Good morning. Hey, that was a better response. Last night I said good morning and got crickets. Um, it's good to be here. Good to have you here. Obviously, Dan is not here. And so what we're going to try and do this morning is we're going to bridge the gap between uh, the last series we did in the summer, which dealt with the fruit of the Spirit and how in the world are you different, and then the series we're currently in, Faith with Feet. So we're going to try and bridge that gap. Uh, but before we get there, I want to start out with a horrific story of my childhood. Um, and it has to deal with physical education class, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, PE. Um, and PE is the greatest thing ever. It's like recess that you get a grade for all the way up to the point where PE becomes smelly. And this happens for different people at different times. For some of us, it's 12, 13, 14, whenever it is. But one day you realize that you're wearing the same shirt you've worn for three months. It's got armpit stains on it. It just reeks. Everyone around you reeks. And you realize PE is not that great. It's kind of nasty, really. And to make matters worse, about this time in PE, they institute a thing called the Presidential Physical Fitness Examination. I don't know if they still do it, but when I was growing up, they'd do it. And for a couple weeks, you were like military. They'd train you, and you'd have to do push-ups and sit-ups, and you'd have to do all this training. And then you'd get to a point in the course where they'd test you on these feats. And I remember they had like the shuttle run. You'd sprint over, and you'd pick up an eraser. You'd sprint back. You'd set it down. You'd sprint over. You'd pick up another eraser. You'd run back. You'd set it down. When am I going to use that? Thank you, school. Um, they run the mile. I was 13. Why do I need to run the mile? My parents have cars. I have a bicycle. That time means nothing to me. But the worst thing they did, and the thing, oh, it was bad for me, were the pull-ups. They'd have you do the pull-ups. I remember this, and I knew I couldn't do any pull-ups. I knew because I had a daybed growing up and had these railings, and I'd tuck my legs up, and I'd try and do it on the railings of my daybed, and I couldn't hoist myself up. And so I knew the pull-ups were going to go bad, and the whole class, girls and guys, because I was bad too at that age, because the girls all want the older boys and aren't interested in you, but you desperately want them to like you. But they're all going to watch you do the pull-ups. And in my case, they're going to watch me do the pull-ups I can't do. Making matters worse, at my school, there was a kid named Farrar. And he still, he lives over in Jackson, I think. But Farrar was just a beast, compact muscle. And Farrar would jump up there every year and do like 70 pull-ups. And everyone would clap for Farrar after he went. My last name's Gordon. And so while they're still all clapping for Farrar and his pull-ups, the coach would call, Gordon. I'd be like, I got to follow that. <laughs> and I'd try and hide, and eventually the coach would be like, I see a stick boy, come on up here. And he called them chin-ups. And I'd always walk up there being like, there's nothing chin-up about this. And the worst part is, I couldn't reach the bar, and so he'd have to do like a cheerleader hoist and he'd like, like we we're going to do a stunt. And I'd grab the bar and I'd be dangled up there. And an amazing thing would happen. It's the exact same thing you can read about if you type it into Google. Like when a lady parks her car on top of her kid, which you shouldn't do. But when that happens, there's these stories where the lady gets out and superhumanly lifts the car up and the kid scampers out. And she says, yeah, I just had adrenaline or whatever. That's what would happen to me on the pull-up bar. I'd, I'd be sitting there and all of a sudden I would rattle off about six of them somehow. I don't know how, but I'd rattle off about six, and then you'd have the awkward moment where you think you can get one more, and you just sit there and shake in front of your whole class before your arms give away. But I remember walking back to my seat and thinking, wow, I did the pull-ups. And on that year, I remember I got all the boxes checked, mile run, somehow pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups. I got them all checked to where I received the Presidential Physical Fitness Award for excellence. Oh, we almost had clapping. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, no, it shouldn't be clapping. But what's funny is you'd get a certificate with that, and in the left-hand uh, part of that, it would have the coach's signature. And on the right hand, it would have the signature of the President of the United States of America, which in my time was Bill Clinton. 
And so I like to think when I was 13 of William Jefferson Clinton sitting in the Oval Office getting my stats from the physical fitness test and saying, I'm impressed. I got to sign this thing real quick. We should get this kid on six pull-ups. He can go after Saddam for us. This kid, wow, impressive. Sadly, that's how a lot of us view God. We view God that this, this cosmic being, this almighty creator is looking down at us and thinking, I'm impressed. Like Bill Clinton, there's no way he cared about a kid from southeast Missouri how many pull-ups they did. That just wasn't in his sphere, but a lot of us view God like, boy, if I can impress him, if I can do this. And that's been the way of the church for hundreds of years after Christ. That was the way of the church. You could earn your way into heaven, you could buy your way into heaven, or you could get into heaven by not doing that bad of stuff. But it's all about earning and all about buying your way in. It's like God's looking down and he's like, hey, Gabriel, come here, listen. Did you hear her singing just now? We've got to get her saved so she can be on praise team. We need her on our side. That's not the way God operates. And some guys got together and they started reading the Bible. And they got together and after reading the Bible a few times, they read Galatians and they were reading some portions of Ephesians. They got in a little huddle and they said, hey, I don't think this is what we're doing at our church. And so they pulled out uh, one scripture that really influenced these guys. It was Ephesians 2. We're going to look at that. You can turn to Ephesians 2. If you're using the house Bibles, it's page 151. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I want to key in already on that word dead. If we go back to our PE illustration, imagine picking teams for kickball, and you're the last pick, and you got the girl who's not very good at sports with her rec specs and, and weird shape, and then you have a dead guy. You're not going to sit there and say, well, do we want Bethany or the guy who's dead? Dead is nothing. Dead's not going to help you. It's a no-brainer. Take Bethany. Dead. Worthless. Not good for anything. Worm food. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So Paul's saying, you, you were all dead. But then he says this, among them we too. So he's not like, I'm excluded. He, I'm in this too. My ministry team, us, us apostles, we're this way too. The Jews are like this. The Gentiles are like this. We were all dead in our transgressions. And we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he's saying it's all of us. Then he turns the attention to God. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace, he says it again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So repeatedly in here, it's like the breakup scene where the guy's like, it's not you, it's me. Paul's saying, it's not you, it's God. It's not you, it's God. Oh, did you forget? It's not you, it's God. It's not your pull-ups, it's not your singing voice, it's not your talents, it's God. He's reminding us over and over, for by grace you have been saved. And then in verse 9, not as a result of works, because if it was works, you would boast. If I get in because I sing well, well, I got something to brag about, and then it's not God anymore. And these guys got around the Bible, and they read this, and they said, oh man, we've been doing this wrong. They said, we've got to change this. We've got to let people know. We've got to open up the Bible. And what they came out with and what everyone grasped hold of was grace. That you're saved by amazing, wondrous grace. 
And for some of us in this room, I'm not sure, I know a lot of you, but for some of you, you maybe never have responded to that grace, and that grace might, and in that grace, God might be calling to you even today. If that's the case, I hope you'll respond even today. But what happened in our church scene is that so many of us grabbed grace and that we began pending grace against works in this epic boxing match. And of course, grace is going to win. Grace is almighty. Grace is of God. Works is us. Grace is just going to just trample works. And that's true. And that's right. And that's good. But here's what I want to spend the rest of our time on today. This thought that you weren't saved to be saved. Now, that's a byproduct, and heaven's great, and that's, you know, that's a really important thing for us. But the sole purpose of your salvation wasn't so God could hang out with you in heaven. Because if that was the sole purpose, as soon as you're saved, where would you be? Heaven. We'd have many raptures going on all over the place. If I'm up here and I'm unsaved, and all of a sudden I profess faith and trust the Lord as my Lord and Savior, trust Jesus, boom, my clothes would be here, I'd be gone. I'd be in heaven, because God would get what he wanted. You were saved to be sanctified. You were saved to grow. Dan said last week, he said this, he said, uh, quoting the Old Testament, he said, that man looks at the things external, but the Lord looks at the things internal. He looks at the heart. And then Dan went on and said, if you're a believer here today, which some of you are, probably a lot of us are, if you're a believer, you should care about your heart. And you should be inspecting your heart. And so as a good church member, I went home that day, and I looked down. And I saw shirt. I tried it without my shirt, and that was, I need to do some pull-ups. That was depressing. But I didn't see heart. And I look out here today, and I don't see any of your hearts. And you look at me, and you don't see my heart. And if we happen to see someone's heart, we're in trouble. And so if Dan's saying you should care about it, and we should do it, well, how do we do that? How do we investigate our heart? Well, the Bible's got some answers, like it does for everything. And it says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So out of what's in your heart, stuff comes out of you. It also says that the heart is the wellspring of life. That from the heart, your life is lived out. From the things stored up in you. So I take that to mean that how do you investigate your heart? How do you check your heart? How do you see what's going on in your heart? You look at your works. If you're a believer here today, you should be assessing your heart, and you do that through assessing your works. So we have to understand what good works are. Of course, we understand good works. You're here at church. That's a good work because God says we should not forsake the assembling together of one another. We should come to church. You're here. That's a good work. Well done. You love your neighbor. You do something nice for him. Bake him a pie. Smile at him. Wave him. Good work. Good, good stuff. And then we have bad works. We all know what those are. Sins. Instead of coming to church, you vandalize the church. Instead of waving at your neighbor, you, you know, weed eat their azaleas or something. It's, you do something bad. That'd be a bad work. But a lot of our Christian circles and a lot of our culture, a lot of the North American Christianity, we have this third category we've created that is non-works. I'm not going to do anything overtly good. I'm not going to do anything overtly bad. I'm going to sit in the middle and do nothing, and I'm okay. Well, again, the Bible has commentary on that. James 4.17, which we'll come to later in the study, says this, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him... It is sin. And so again, the Bible makes it so easy. He says there's two types of peoples, believers and unbelievers. There's two destinations, heaven, hell. There's two types of work, good work, bad work. If you want to know how your heart is, you're going to investigate those works. And so we're going to look at today why we do works. 
If you're a believer in here, why should you be doing works? And the first reason is it's modeled in the past. Okay, first God models this by showing that he cares about it by establishing a system of blessings and consequences. We see this all over the place. The Old Testament, you can really see it because these blessings and consequences in the Old Testament are oftentimes temporal. They're almost instant. David's an example. David was obedient to his dad. His dad said, go tend the flocks. So David tended the flocks and did it well. Then his dad said, take food to the war. So he takes food to the war. And then David, in humility, looks at Goliath and says, God's not going to like him. God's going to take care of him. He was confident in his Lord. And so the Lord blesses David by allowing him to be the one to conquer Goliath. That was a blessing from obedience. David got to be the one. See, God was going to take care of Goliath. He already had that listed. He was going to do it. And if David hadn't been obedient, we might be reading about Timothy and Goliath or osteoporosis and Goliath or something else. Something would have gotten Goliath. But due to obedience, it was David. Okay, on the other end, we have Achan and Joshua. There's a guy named Achan. And the Lord says, you're going to conquer some places. Don't steal the gold. Achan goes in and he sees the gold and he's like, man, looks shiny. Takes it, hides it in his tent. He was a child of Israel. He was one of God's people. And so you could say, hey, he's a believer. They bring him out in front of everyone. They said, did you steal? He confesses his sins. He says, yeah, I stole. So Achan's not that different than anyone else. And what happens to Achan? He gets killed. Capital punishment. He gets stoned by the people. Which I think set a precedent. Every time they had a war, people were probably walking around like casino blackjack dealers showing God, I didn't, I didn't steal anything because I don't want to go the way of Achan. But there was a direct consequence. In the New Testament, we see this often with spiritual blessings or eternal blessings. Okay, we don't see it as much as a tangible thing. Uh, and we don't want to get the mindset of, oh, if something bad happens in your life, if you have a disease or something happens, you're sinning. Because God uses circumstances and trials to define our walks and to chisel us. You see this with Paul. Temporal blessings versus spiritual blessings. With Paul, was he blessed in a temporal sense? The guy was beaten, he was bitten by stuff, he was shipwrecked, and eventually he was martyred. He had a just horrific life. If you're outside looking in and looking at Paul's life, you're like, ah, oh, man, his life stinks. But oftentimes you read Paul's letters, and what does he talk about? He talks about comfort. And you're like, how are you comfortable? Your body's broken. He talks about peace. How are you at peace? I mean, it's just everything that goes around you is catastrophic. How are you at peace? There's one physical description of Paul that's deemed accurate. And someone took a journal, and, and scholars have looked at the journal, and they say, we think this is true. We think Paul was at this place at this time. We think this guy who wrote it was at this place at this time. The writing's good. The dating's good. One physical description, it says Paul was like bow-legged, probably because he was limping, because he was hurt. He was short. He was balding. He had a hooked nose. And I love this part. The one physical description of Paul, he was smiling. And you look at his life, you say, what does this cat have to smile about? But he was spiritually blessed by God because of his obedience because of his good work. And we see that today, typically as the means that God uses. Now, I want to make a point here that God's the same throughout. There's not an Old Testament God, New Testament God. He's the same throughout. But I liken it to a classroom. If you're a teacher and you walk into a classroom, we have a few teachers out here, I see. If you're an educator, you walk in and you see six students, and that's going to be your, your semester, your class is going to be six students, you're going to teach starkly different than if you walk in and you see 35 students. If you walk in and your technology is an old overhead projector that's dingy and dusty, you're going to teach differently than if you walk in and there's a smart board. Do you change as a teacher? Does your characteristics change? Does your personality change? No. You're the same teacher. Your methods might change a bit. But you're the same teacher. The only difference there is God sets the circumstances, but God's multifaceted. God's creative. He works in a variety of ways. An example of this in the real world is Islam. 
the number one, and it might be number two now, I should have checked that last night, but the number one or number two way, statistically, that Muslims are coming to faith in closed countries is by dreams and visions. Probably no one in this room came to faith by a dream or a vision. Because in the United States, how do we come to faith? Well, we have churches on every corner. We have Bibles in our hotel rooms. There's a, a plethora of ways and outlets God can use here that he might not be able to use in a closed country where Bibles aren't allowed. So God works in a variety of ways. It's modeled in the past that he cares about this. It's also modeled in his son and Jesus. We're only going to look at one verse because we only have time for that. But in John, this sums it up. This is a beautiful verse. John 17. Jesus is praying. He's getting ready to be arrested. Things are getting ready to go very bad for Jesus in in an earthly sense. And in this prayer, he says this in verse 4. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. One more time, because that's an easy verse to gloss over. I glorified you on the earth. Well, how should be your question. Jesus, how did you glorify God? Having accomplished the work. Was Jesus saved? Well, he was Savior. But was he in good standing with God? He was sinless. So yes, he was in good standing with God. He was God's son. He was God himself. He was okay. And yet, how did he choose to live his life and to glorify God? Through works. He's a lot better than us. And he was committed to a life of works. And you say, that's Jesus. He could fast for a month and a half. He's a little bit different category. That doesn't really apply to me. Um, Ephesians 2, back to that one. Ephesians 2.10 says this. So we just talked about being dead. We talked about his grace saving us. And then we get to verse 10 and it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We were created for good works. If you are redeemed today, if you are uh, justified by Christ, you're supposed to be doing good works. God's got a laundry list for you to be doing. He's got things in your path that you're supposed to be walking in. Not walking the other way, not sidestepping, not sidestepping, not juking. You're supposed to be walking in these things. And that Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we, we usually read the first nine and are pumping our fist. And then we, what? There's a 10th verse there in that section? But we see there, perfectly illustrated, Paul just outlines the Christian walk. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead. God and God alone makes you alive. You're saved by grace. And then you're supposed to be doing stuff. You're brought to life to live and to do things according to his spirit. If you ever forget what you're supposed to be doing on earth, read Ephesians 2. So the past, it's modeled. God obviously cares about it. He shows it in his son, and then he shows that future generations are supposed to be doing this, which we'll talk about now. Secondly, the future depends on it. If you're sitting here today, I'll tell you this, your future depends on your works. And before you call like blasphemy, that's not right. What about the grace thing? No, no, no. Your soul doesn't depend on your works. You're justified. You're not relying on your work. You're relying on Jesus Christ's work, and that work's good forever. You're set. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're set because his work's good, and God's promises are good. You're okay there, but you will be judged. You will be judged. And you can't say, no, I'm saved. I won't. You will be judged. We'll look at some verses to back it up. Romans 14. Romans 14.10 says this, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul doesn't say some of us. Paul doesn't say, yeah, the unbelievers, they'll get judged. It'll be hilarious. No, he says we will all be there. All of us. 
are going to be judged. And if you skip down to 12, it says, so then each one of us, again, each of us, will give an account of himself to God. I'm not that excited about giving an account of myself to God. It's great because he's going to look at me and he's going to see Jesus Christ and my soul's going to be good. But then I've got to give an account of the things I did and the way I lived post-grace, post-saving grace. Revelation 20, verse 15 says this, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we're told what happens to those who haven't responded to grace. Okay, we're, we're told what happens. But then if you go back to verse 12, it says this, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written there, according to their deeds. Well, hold up. If you're judged according to your deeds, what happened to that whole grace thing? Oh, he's talking about saved people. We saw unsaved are thrown in a lake of fire, but still people are being judged by their deeds. Who's that? Well, if you're in here and you're a believer, that's you being judged for your deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10 And then we'll attempt to quit jumping around. But 2 Corinthians 5.10, this is a great section of Scripture. You should read this section. Um, it talks about things temporal and things eternal. It talks about how we're just a, a warped tent. And this isn't, this isn't our home, and, and we're going to be taken up, and we're going to have new bodies. All this stuff's going to go on. And in verse 10, it says this, For we must all, again, all. Who's going to appear? All. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So someday I'm going to stand there, and I'm going to be looking at God. My first time actually seeing God. I'm going to be standing there and I'm going to have to recount the hours I wasted on Facebook. Not that Facebook's inherently bad, but I think of all the time I wasted on there. I'm going to have to talk about the times where I saw someone on the side of the road and thought, hey, they should need a ride, but all oh, the bus stop's only 100 yards further on. They'll probably just say no. So I just rationalize it in my head and drive by. A good work God put in my heart, put in my mind, laid out in advance for me to do, and I just drive on. Uh, try not to look at him. Try not to make eye contact. I got to think about all the times staring at the perfect being of God. How many times I put the kid who can do six push-ups or six pull-ups before him. And some of us sit out here and they say, why does it matter? Heaven's heaven. Heaven's going to be great. Our joy is going to be complete. And that's true. But we'll talk about that last scene in heaven. But first, let's talk about the present. Because we talk about the past, how it's modeled. It's easy to gloss over that sometimes. We talk about the future, but that's way out there. Let's talk about the present. And I gave you four reasons why we should do good works. But before we get to the four reasons, I just want to say a first reason that's a precursor reason. It's not listed there. It's because God says to. We should do good works. It's the Sunday school answer because God says to. In Genesis 12, he's talking to Abraham. He says, you are blessed, or we could say you are saved to be a blessing. Well, how are you a blessing? Through works, through giving your money away, through giving food away, by helping people, by trying to share your faith with people. He says to do Ephesians 2.10, he says he's got a bunch of work laid out in advance, prepared for each one of us. He's got a list for us to do, an exciting list for us to do. He says uh, the commandments are to love God with all your soul, mind, heart, 
And then to love your neighbors as yourself. How do you love your neighbors? Well, you bake them a pie, you wave to them, you, you check on their sick kid. You got to do a work to love your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor from afar. Even praying for them, it's a work that you love your neighbor, but you can't just love them like never thinking of them, never talking to them, never having any. You can't love someone like that. He tells us to do it. But a lot of people, when we say, why do good works? It's, we say, well, so we can feed the world. So we can help the poor. So we can make friends. So we can save people. I'll throw this out there. If you're going into the mission field or you're trying to live missional to save people, you got the cart before the horse. Those aren't the reasons. Those are means and those are good outlets. Those are things we should do. But it's not the reason why. The four reasons. The first reason. If you want to write these down, great. If you don't, listen to them and hopefully apply them. First reason is to know him. Through good works, you know God. An example of this. If I'm in a prayer group, Okay? Our prayer group's meeting, I don't know anyone in there, and we're all talking, all of a sudden a lady raises her hand. I said, yeah. And she says, will you pray for my adult son, Rodney? I'm really praying that he'll get saved. Will you pray for Rodney? And I do what I do most. I'm like, yeah, Rodney. Got it. I leave the room. I don't think about Rodney again. Rodney who? And I have no thoughts concerning Rodney. I don't pray for Rodney. I don't really care about Rodney. I don't think about Rodney. A couple months, fast forward, a couple months, she raises her hand again, same prayer group. She raises her hand, she says, my son Rodney, I got good news, he got saved. Now the Holy Spirit's inside of me, so I'm going to be excited. I'm going to smile, I might give a high five. Oh, good, his name's Rodney? That's, that's terrific. Okay, but what if we redo that scenario? She raises her hand that first time and says, pray for my son Rodney. I say, hold on, what's your son Rodney's phone number? Why do you want his phone number? I want to call him. And I begin meeting with Rodney. I begin taking Rodney to lunch. I begin getting to know Rodney. And then nightly, as I pray, the last prayer I say to God each night is, Lord, save Rodney. Please, in your mercy and your grace, call out to Rodney. Lord, be with Rodney tonight. Lord, save Rodney. Bring Rodney to yourself. And I just become Rodney-centric in my thoughts. My good works are all poured out towards Rodney. And then a few months go by. She raises her hand. She says, good news. Rodney got saved. What is my response? Is it high five? Yep. Yeah. Fist pound. Good for, was this Rodney? No, I'm probably weeping. I'm hugging her. I'm excited, and I guarantee you I'm calling Rodney. And in all that process, you know what else I'm doing? I'm looking at God and saying, whoa, you really did that? I hung out with Rodney. I know Rodney. He's kind of a little jerk, and you saved him? Oh, that part in the Bible about making your requests known and that you'll answer them? Oh, i got to pray first. Oh, you really are that faithful. You see, if I do good works, all of a sudden, I get to see God working. God's going to get the work done. If God wants to save Rodney, he's going to save Rodney. But what he allows me to do is hop up on his shoulder and get a close view of it. I can watch it firsthand, real close, or I can watch it from afar with like binoculars and say, yeah, I think that was God. It was hard to tell from way back here. It's like being at a ball game. You know, you go to a Cardinal game. I love the Cardinals. I went to the playoffs last year. I got to go to a game. And if I watch the Cardinals in the playoffs on my couch at home, I might cheer. I might get a little excited. I might pump my fist once or twice. But, and I, I have pictures to prove this. If I go and I watch it at the stadium, I turn into another human being. I have face paint on. My shirt's off. I'm swinging it. And the next day, I'm hoarse. And when people are talking about the game the next day, you know what I say? I was there. I don't say, I was on my couch. 
because I was there. I was part of it. Now, ultimately, the players did all the work, right? But I felt like I was part of something. And God allows us to get in there and get to see him firsthand. And so by doing good works, if you attempt good works, if you do good works, first thing is you get to know God. And then the second thing, if you begin to do good works and you submit yourself to good works, you begin to know yourself. You'll get to know yourself. An example of this is I got married. And people ask me all the time, how's marriage? How's marriage? How's married life? You get that like a thousand times the first year you're married. And I usually say good or great or swell or awesome. You know, I can say all kinds of stuff. But if I was going to be honest, the word I would use is sanctifying. It's sanctifying. An example of this would be last week, my wife and I got in a fight. And she's a stuffer and I'm a stuffer, so our fights are like three days long over nothing. And then we finally talk about it and it's like, oh, we're all good. But it was one of those. And finally I got her to say, hey, what's wrong? She said, well, I'll tell you. And you know, she was kind of getting steamed. She said, first of all, you see that dryer sheet on the ground? I said, yeah, I see it. She goes, it's been there seven days. I watched you drop it, and then I watched you walk by it for seven days without picking it up. And it was like an everybody loves Raymond moment, because I'm like, why didn't you pick it up? I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but then she goes over some others, and she says, uh, you see that chair? I said, yeah. And she says, you notice anything about that chair? So it looks like a good chair. She goes, no, you see the proximity from the table to the chair. I said, yeah, it's about two feet out. She goes, yeah, it's about two feet out because every time you sit in that chair, you get up and you leave that chair out. And so I started looking at all these things and adding them up, and I said, you're right. You know, I'm supposed to love you. I'm supposed to serve you. The ways that you need to be served is by me not being just a slob. I realize that. And so, yeah, I need to do a better job with that. You're right. I'm going to fix this. I picked up the dryer sheet, held it up, threw it away, vanquished it. Um, two days went by, and we're leaving the house. And we're getting ready to walk out the door. And she turns as we're leaving. She goes, <clears throat> I said, no, the AC's off. We're good. And she goes, <clears throat> no, all the lights are off. I got them. Let's go. <clears throat> it took three mms. And then I look, and the chair, two feet out. Because here's the deal. If I lived off in a cabin in the woods by myself, I would be a pretty swell guy. I wouldn't realize my mess. I wouldn't really know, you know, what was going on. I wouldn't really be assessing myself. But when I put myself in community with my wife full time, it starts to have me realize how wretched I am. That I can't, for the one person I love most in the world, push in a chair. And it's because I've submitted myself to trying to do those things that I realize how bad I am at them. It is a sanctifying process because I'm trying to do Good works. And if you want to test this out, try it. Whoever you're sitting by today, whether it's a spouse, friend, kid, whatever, try to submit to seven days of not using a mean tone or not having a mean thought come up in the heart every time they talk to you. I give you two days. I was preaching this this week, so I was trying it. And like, even yesterday, my wife at one point goes, hey, honey, real sweet. And I'm like, what? And all of a sudden, I'm like, where did that come from? Why am I so mean? And then that takes us to the third point. If we're submitting ourselves to good works, we start to know him. Then we begin to know ourselves. And then thirdly, we begin to know our intrinsic need for him. I can't be winsome to the one person I've been given to walk through life with till the day I die. The person I'm supposed to love more than anyone, the person who's going to bear my children, I can't be winsome to her. God, I need you. Because how am I going to do that to my neighbors? Or to my enemies. The Bible says we should love those people. How am I going to do that? And so we begin to know God. We begin to know ourselves. And then we begin to know, I cannot do good works without you. I can't. I'm going to fail. Try it this week. Let me know how many days you go. 
It's only a matter of time before you blow it. And then you run to the cross. And you don't run to the cross and fall at the cross if you're just sitting there in your house, not trying to do anything good. If you try and do nothing good, guess what? We're all really good at doing nothing. We're all really good at doing evil. We're all really good at just sitting around. It's when you submit yourself to the good works that you realize, I need someone better than me to help out. Oh, I know someone. And he lives in me. And he wants to do this through me. I think I'll let him. And you get the fourth point. You begin to know him. You begin to know yourself. You begin to know your need for him. And you get to the fourth one. By all that, we start to realize his greatness. That, oh my goodness, through you, Lord, I can push that chair in. Through you, Lord, I can see what you did with Rodney. Through you, Lord, you are great. And then I begin to want to share his greatness. Someone's talking and they, oh man, I wish, boy, my son, he's just walking. A, a, I'll say, hey, I knew a lady like that. And this Rodney kid, I'll tell you, he was, he was something, but this is what God did. I hear someone talking about a fight with their spouse. I'll be like, hey, I used to leave dryer sheets all around, but listen to what God did to me. And what happens is I'm starting to care about God's glory. And how did that happen? I begin to attempt good works and see my need for him. That's what it's all about. It's about God's glory. And so that brings us back to the future when we're standing there in heaven. Oh, man. At that moment, our selfishness is going to be gone. Our pride is going to be gone. We're going to be standing there as pure as we've ever been, and we're going to be looking at the greatest being ever, the one who created an ever at all. At that moment, we're going to be standing there. And the one thing that all of us are going to want to do in that moment, because we're going to realize it, is going to be the blinders are off. The things we hear in this world, all that's gone. The one thing we're going to want to do in that moment is glorify that being. And he says what we're going to get to do is we're going to take all our works and we're going to put them in a pile and there's going to be a fire of some sort. And at the end of that, whatever's left, whatever passes through the fire, we're going to get to pick up as ours and then offer him in glory. And I fear that day in heaven when I'm standing there, knowing my soul's good, knowing I'm going to be in heaven, knowing that's all going to be great, but that moment of standing there when the angels are singing and everyone's glorifying God, I'm going to look into my hand of what's left from my life here. It's going to be empty. I'm going to have a couple pennies, and I'm going to offer them to him. I'm going to offer him everything I have, but how great would it be just to have armfuls of stuff and just look at them and say, it's not mine, it's yours, you did this. Take it. I want to give this to you. That's the picture we should long for. Billy Graham got asked this. He got asked, uh, what are you excited about? About death and where you're going and all that. He said, you know what? And I think he was talking to Diane Sawyer. He said, you know, I'm really excited to stand there and get my well done, my good and faithful servant. And then he got choked up and he stopped and he said, almost started crying. He said, but you know what? I don't think I will. I don't think I'll get that said to me. Because it's not dictated on the size of your ministry. It's not how many people come forward when you speak, or it's not how well you sing. or It's, not. it's the faithfulness of your heart. That the good things he's laid out for you to do, that each time you see one of those good things, you know what, God, by your power, by your spirit, let's do this thing. Now, you're going to do it, but hey, I'll, I'll, I'll be a part of that. I'll get a front row seat for that. But for our church, both locally and in North America, the, the modern church, Grace has kind of become a hidey hole. Not what it was intended to be. And we say things like, from Scripture, we say, oh, my works are of filthy, filthy rags. My works, oh, it's filthy. It's rubbish. And then in the parentheses after that, we say, so I guess I don't have to do any. 
they're rubbish, so I'll just hang out. And we're going to sing in a little bit, your grace is enough for me, your grace is enough for me, and everyone will lift their hands and we'll all sing it. And in parentheses you say, your grace is enough for me to save me, get me to heaven, and that's it. Don't dare expect me to do anything. Your grace is enough that I can just hang out. Your grace is enough that I can play Xbox. Your grace is enough that I can just sit. And we'll say, I'm just a sinner. I'm a cracked pot. I'm a stretched out tent. I'm wretched, which is all true. But if you really understand grace, you'll then follow that up with, by grace, I have been justified. I'm clothed in Jesus. I have the mind of Christ. I'm anointed for good works laid out in advance for me. And I'm filled, sealed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. What we do is we look at a Christmas tree as 12-year-olds. We look at this Christmas tree, and there's a bunch of gifts, and our parents say, you have to open this one first, then all the rest of them have to do with that one. Open this one first, then you can have all the rest. So we say, okay, and we open up that first gift, and we look at it, and we say, saving grace, just what I wanted. And we go to our room and lock the door, and we hold it tight. They come and knock, and they say, hey, do you want to open up some of your other gifts that that grace enables? Like sanctification or the Holy Spirit working through you or your skills and talents in a way that's never been used before? You want to open up this other stuff? Nope, I got my grace. I'm good. We'll turn on our music loud and just forget about it. And thinking of the, old, the, the former series with uh, the fruit of the Spirit, fruit isn't a choice because the Holy Spirit's in you. He's good. He's active. But its size and its type is... Some of us have little, like, concord grapes, and we should have big old bulging tangerines going on in our lives. And it's not a choice that I'm going to do more, I'm going to do more, I'm going to do more. It's a choice to allow God to take control, to quit neglecting the work he has, to quit using free will as an escape clause, as a stiff arm to nullify the Spirit's work, right? That's what our free will does. My free will has me drive by that stranger who's walking in the rain towards the bus stop. It's my free will that says, oh, God's spirit wants me to, but my free will, eh, I'll keep driving. When we lay down our free will and allow for God's will to take over, we'll be spurred on to love and good deeds. We'll begin helping widows and orphans. We'll grieve with those who grieve because we actually find that we care about them. We'll begin loving our neighbors actively. We'll live on mission. We'll begin sharing our faith with believers and unbelievers alike. In short, by God's Spirit, we begin to seek His name glorified. Just like the old prayer says, we begin to seek His name glorified on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven, we're told what we're going to be doing. We're going to be glorifying God. And my hope for my life is that I get to heaven and it feels like home. And they say, well, what am I going to do today? What's on the itinerary? They say, oh, you're going to glorify God. And be like, I'm already good at this. I've been doing this. Now, God's allowed me to do this, but I've been walking in this. This is great. I get to do this more, but a lot of us don't even look forward to heaven because it's going to be so foreign. We're going to get there and be like, oh, how do I do that again? Give me some training because, you know, on earth I just kind of hung out in that room. I had my, my grace there, but no, grace should flow out of your life. We're getting ready in your life as you walk. You're getting ready for career as a glorifier. I want to be so comfortable when I get to heaven that I get there and I kick my shoes off because it's like home. Yeah, I know how this goes. This is great. It's going to be better. It's going to be more joyous. I can't even fathom that, but it's going to be kind of like what I've been doing. Glorifying God, but I can do it more purely, more humbly. Oh, it's going to be great. But that one moment might not be. So as we close, Ryan's going to come and close us. But I pictured this. I was thinking of, of, of how I view grace usually. And it's kind of like whitewater rafting for me. And what I usually do is I go whitewater rafting 
in a pond. That's my view of grace. I'm sitting there in my pond in my raft. My raft keeps me safe. It's eternal. It's going to keep me floating. I got my helmet on. You know, I'm armed with a helmet. I got the life jacket on, which is like the Holy Spirit hugging me close. I've got an oar, which is, you know, the Bible, God's word, discretion, wisdom. I got it all there, but at the end of the day, I'm sitting in a pond. You know how fun it is to sit in a pond? It's fun for about five seconds. The turtle, up. Oh, turtle went under. Grace is awesome. Yeah, this life is, a, oh, I'm, my life's like Paul's life. This is fun. This is great. Adventure. I'm sitting in a pond. And the real picture of grace, I think, is when you're dropped into the middle of that that river. You get saved and you're just dropped right into the Christian walk. There's like no training. You're saved, you're in there. And you're bounding around and you're a little bit fearful and you're going out of control and it's kind of crazy. But then all of a sudden you think, hey, I'm in this raft. I'm pretty secure in this raft. I got this life jacket hugging me close to the Holy Spirit. I got this right here. I got my helmet on. That's other believers and, and things protecting me. And I got this oar I can kind of maneuver around in the river. And I can pick to go this way and maybe do foreign missions or go this way and just love my neighbors. Like I can pick kind of which things. God's given me a lot of options of good works. But the whole time, it is the river of grace pushing me closer to Christ. Bounding along, smiling, singing, excited, filled with spiritual blessings because I am going down river of grace towards Christ-likeness and towards my Savior. So as we close and as, as Ryan sings here, your grace is enough. I hope that as you sing this, that your grace is enough for me and then fill in the parentheses. It's enough for me to conquer giants. It's enough for me to really rely on you. It's enough for me to love my neighbors. It's enough for me to do well and do right by my life. Is this grace really enough? If it's just enough to save you, we're cheapening it. It's not just enough to save you. It's enough to move you and to shake you and to fill you. And so I hope that's your prayer as we close.